Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. would like you to turn to somebody around, maybe one or two people around you, introduce yourself to them if you don't know them, you probably came with them, but maybe if there's somebody beside you that you don't know yet, introduce yourself and ask this question or answer this question. What are some potential misunderstandings about prayer? What are some things that people can think about prayer which aren't necessarily true or don't capture everything there is about prayer, okay? So any potential misunderstandings about prayer, go ahead and chat with somebody about that for a minute before we open God's Word. Okay, so if you'll come back together. Uh, I'm sure that you came up with, with many different ones. Let me mention, let me mention three that uh, will springboard in, into the text today. One is that prayer is for when you're in church. Some people think that that's when we pray. We pray when we come to church. And indeed we do, but prayer is designed to be a lot more expansive than that. Another uh, misunderstanding about prayer is that you pray when you're afraid. Now, I admit, when I'm afraid, I do pray. (laughs) And that's a good thing, but... Prayer is designed to be more than just like an emergency lifeline, right? Uh, and then how about prayer is asking God for things? It is true that in prayer we ask God for things, and maybe we have a prayer list. Maybe we have many things we ask God for, but prayer is designed to be more than just asking God for things. And I want to invite your attention today to John chapter 11. We will look at John chapter 11. This is the fourth week of six in our 40 days of prayer. We're calling it a prayer life like Jesus. And basically what we're doing is very simple approach. We're taking one recorded prayer of Jesus in the New Testament, and we're studying it for what it meant to him. And we're saying, How does that help us as as we pray? And we come today to John chapter 11. These prayers of Jesus really show quite a variety. Some of them are very long. Like a few weeks ago when when we started this series, we did his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that went on for hours. And then even last week, we studied John chapter 17, uh, what a lot of people call the high priestly prayer, where he prayed for his disciples before he was about to leave and be uh, arrested. And uh, he prayed a lot of things, specific things for them that they would be spiritually protected and that they would be united. The verse that we had on our screen that Corey showed with the kids, that, that was a part of that. Those were longer prayers. But the prayer today is very different. It, it's short. It's, it's terse. It, it, it's not at a designated time of prayer. It's not at a designated place of prayer. It's kind of right in the middle when Jesus is doing something very important. In fact, he's doing something very important. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he prays. 
And that is the context. Someone had died, someone close to Jesus, that was Lazarus, and in the middle of performing this amazing miracle of bringing him back to life, Jesus utters a very brief prayer that helps us understand the true nature of prayer. And here it is in verse uh, 41. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. Now, what I want to do today, we're jumping into the middle of a story there. I want us to go back to the beginning of the story, and I'm going to walk us through it. And I'm going to explain what we learn about Jesus from John chapter 11. And then I'll show you how this prayer fits in with it. And that's what the Gospels are designed to do, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're designed to teach us about Jesus, who he is, and what is valuable to him. And we, we learn three things about Jesus from John chapter 11. And the first one is that he is sovereign, he is powerful, and he is life-giving. When you come to read John chapter 11, you will come away afterwards and go, wow, he is sovereign. He is powerful. He gives life. Nobody else could do that. Well, let's start at verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard it, Jesus said, no, he didn't say anything yet. He stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. That's really interesting to me. Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus knew he had the power to heal Lazarus and keep him from dying, right? But when he heard the news, he didn't go. He didn't go right away. He he stayed where he was for two more days. He was sovereign. He, He was in control. He was fully God and fully man at the same time in the same person And he knew when he needed to go and when God would receive the most glory. So he was sovereign. And, of course, the disciples objected, like, oh, we don't want to go back to Judea. That's when you were opposed. Well, he wasn't afraid of being opposed if it was God's time. So he was sovereign. So we skip down to verse 17 in the story. They do go back there. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. Their funeral customs were very different than ours are today. There are a lot of, tip, you know, people do some variety of things, but There are certain things that we tend to do at almost all memorial services. In that day, um, 
mourning, in fact, days of mourning would have been normal. And so it was a very loud and expressive thing. And in fact, even a poor family was required to hire two flute players and one professional mourner who would just wail out loud. So get the picture. When Jesus arrives on the scene, there's all of this commotion going on. You've got real personal grief. Mary and Martha are just ripped up because their brother has died and Jesus hasn't showed up. And then you've got the professional mourners that are wailing and playing music and it's a lot of, it says they were, they were only a couple of miles away from Jerusalem, so a lot of the Jews came from there. There's just a lot going on. And so in verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will live, uh, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So now we've got a little different perception going on. Jesus is saying, your brother is going to rise because he knows he's about to raise him. And Martha's thinking, oh yeah, one day at the end, there's going to be a resurrection. But Jesus looks at her in verse 25 very famous verses, very important verses in the New Testament. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see what he's doing there? It's like he's changing her perspective to some general belief in the resurrection that's going to happen one day to a very specific belief in him. I am the resurrection and the life. I'm the one that has all the power. I'm the one that can raise people up. And by the way, if you believe in me, that means if you put your faith in me, if you depend on me, for salvation, you will never die. Oh, yes, your body will die, but you will live forever with eternal life. Jesus is not only sovereign, he is powerful, and he gives life. Let me ask you a question. Do you have spiritual life today? I'm not asking you if you're a good person, if you've turned over a new leaf, if you attend church, or if you've been baptized or confirmed, or you, you know, don't steal the cookies from your wife's plate when she's not looking. I'm not asking those kind of things. I'm asking, have you come to the point in your life of admitting and acknowledging that you're separated from God because of your wrong and you know Jesus died to pay that price and you've received him. You put all of your faith and dependence on him. I hope so because if you do that, you will live. He is sovereign. He is life-giving. And she shows that she did understand, verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. We sang 
I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The three in one. Open your heart to him. Now, in the Gospel of John up to this point, the, Jesus has been pictured as the giver of life. Watch this. He gives material life. He gives spiritual life. He gives physical life. What do I mean? Well, material life, there were things that were inanimate that, that came to life, like uh, John chapter 2, he turned the water into wine. And then in John chapter 6, he fed 5,000 people by taking just a few bread and, and, and fish and, and multiplying them. He gives spiritual life. John 3, he talked to Nicodemus about giving a spiritual or a new birth. And in John 4, there was a Samaritan woman by the well that he talked about living water. And in John 6, he is the actual bread of life. Jesus also gives physical life, we find out. There was a boy who was dying in John 4 that he healed. There was an invalid in John 5 that he healed. There was a man born blind in John 9 that was healed. And now in John chapter 11, Jesus is about to show them what may be the greatest miracle of all of them that they had seen. Watch what happens when, when he had said this. This is in verse 43. If we skip there, this is after Jesus calls Lazarus to come out of the grave. Look what happens, or this tells us about his calling it. Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You know, a lot of people have noted that it's good that he said Lazarus, because who knows how many would have come out. Right? Lazarus, it's your turn. Come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. This is the first and I think maybe the most important thing about Jesus that we learn from John chapter 11, that he is sovereign, he is in control, nothing can move him away from his purposes. He is powerful, he can do anything, including raise people from the dead and give them spiritual, eternal life. He is life-giving. Isn't it great to have a Savior like that today? Jesus is sovereign, powerful, and life-giving. Now, the second thing we learn about him is that this great, sovereign, powerful being is not detached from the realities of suffering, evil, and death. It's not often that you see a powerful being also be a compassionate being, but Watch what happens here. Um, verse 32, we pick up in the story where they're going uh, to, to show Jesus where the tomb is. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, um, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. That's exactly what Martha had said. Notice when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. That phrase, deeply moved in spirit, it translates a Greek word. The original word means to be moved with anger, to be indignant. Jesus is mad here. Now, what, what made Jesus bristle? Some, some have thought, 
Well, maybe he's bristling at the unbelief that he sees, that all this false wailing and lack of belief in his power. There there may have been something there, but I, I think it fundamentally goes more to Jesus saw the scenario. He was the giver of life. He is life. He is resurrection. And he's involved in a world and seeing a world and seeing people that he loves affected by sin, by suffering, by sickness, and by death. And that, I think, death is an enemy. It clearly is an enemy. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians, right? That the last enemy to be destroyed is death. It's an enemy, and Jesus sees it, and it, and it moves him, and he's... He's deeply moved by it. He's angry about it. Verse 34, where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied, and Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. In Sunday school growing up, whenever they asked, who knows a verse, this was the one we always quoted. <laughs> It was easy to remember, right? not having any idea what it meant or why it was there. And some of you did that too, didn't you? Right? Anyway, okay, a few admissions. Why did Jesus weep? I mean, we weep when people die because we love them and we're not going to see them anymore and we're going to miss them and... That's not why Jesus wept. He he knew this wasn't the end. I think Jesus wept. I mean, the text kind of, you know, tells us as we follow along. He he saw them weeping. I think it's, it's his compassion for his friends, his dear Mary and Martha friends. There's a deep emotion. Look at verse 38. A few verses later, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. So you put all of this together and we see a Savior that is is moved by human suffering. He's angry about death. Death is an enemy. Yes, it's an enemy that will be overcome, but it's an enemy nonetheless. And he cares about those that are affected in this fallen world. An older theologian, B.B. Warfield, says, Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but that is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for a conflict. Jesus is moved by this. He is troubled by this. He is compassionate for them, but he is also angry, I think, about death, and he is going to do something about it. So this, I think, these, I think, are the two main points of John chapter 11, that he's sovereign, he's powerful, he's life-giving, and he's also touched by our human emotions and the things we experience The third and final point is what we're going to hone in now for a few minutes. And I wanted us to get here. I wanted to get here because, again, it's it's just a small part of the passage. And normally when we're preaching, we preach 
mostly or entirely on the main point or points of the passage. And that's why I've taken the time to go through John 11, so to be faithful to the text so we could see it. But it is true that every part of the Bible is important. And even if it's not the most important part, if it's not the, the reason why John wrote it necessarily, it's still important for us. And I want us to see this third point in verses 41 and 42, and that is that his prayers grew out of communion with the Father. Here's our text. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they may believe that you sent me. When, don't answer out loud, but think about it. When did Jesus ask God the Father to raise Lazarus? When? The text doesn't tell us. It's not recorded that he, when he asked it, was as he walked to Bethany? Maybe. Was it when he saw the people weeping? Maybe. Was it when he was right there at the tomb and they had rolled the stone or moved the stone away and he was about to raise him? Maybe. We're not told when he prayed. We're not told the words that he prayed. It's just right in the miracle, middle of the miracle. Do you see this? He's going along. He's experiencing all of these things. He's in another town. He travels there. He sees their grief. He talks to Mary and Martha. He proclaims himself as the resurrection and the life. And now he's about to go raise her. And right in the middle of all of this activity and all of this teaching about himself, he prays. He doesn't get on his knees. It's not one of the set prayer times. You know, the Jews in those days tended to look towards Jerusalem. He just, in the middle of all of it, he just looks up and thanks the Father that he hears him. I think it's possible that Jesus may not have even actually uttered those words. We, we don't know for sure. C.K. Barrett believed that in his commentary on John. He, he pointed to these words of verse 42 that I know you always hear me. Listen to what he said. No specific moment of prayer is in mind. Jesus is in constant communion with the Father who always hears even the unspoken thoughts of his heart and therefore has already heard his petition for Lazarus. In view of the complete unity between the Father and the Son, there is no need for uttered prayer at all. So we have to admit that we don't know for sure. We don't know whether or not he actually uttered those specific words or when he uttered those words, but it doesn't matter. What matters is he's so closely connected to God, his father. He's so much in communion. And that's the word. Children, remember when Pastor Corey talked about it? It means fellowship and friendship and closeness. Jesus is so close to God, his father, that at any moment he can just pray. 
And so while in this series, we're looking at all these prayers of Jesus and the words, for instance, last week that Jesus prayed were very, very important. What's important today is not as much the words as the fact that Jesus lives in communion with God the Father and can pray at the drop of a hat. Does that make sense? That's what we're seeing about him. Prayer is communion with God. It grows out of communion with God. I admit that prayer as communion with God is probably not the primary lesson in John chapter 11, but it's an important lesson. It's an important lesson. What matters here is the model, the picture we get of oneness. Now think about Jesus' life. What was Jesus' life like? What was his day-to-day existence like? Well, there were incredible demands on him. There were people needing him and wanting him and coming to him and asking him questions and wanting him to heal them. And when word got around that he healed people, there were, there were all kind of people around him all the time. So he had undeniable demands or uh, incredible demands, but he had an undeniable purpose. He, it was really clear why he came. He came to go to the cross. He came to do the Father's will. He came also to spend time alone with God the Father. That was his purpose. So because of that, because he spent so much time with God the Father, it was easy in this moment, okay, I don't have long to pray now, but thank you, Father. Boom, let's raise Lazarus. So, for instance, Mark chapter 1, verse 35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 6, 12, or or Luke 5, actually, the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke chapter 6, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. This is God's word for us today. Prayer is and grows out of communion with God. Prayer is communion with God. And prayer grows out of communion with God. So prayer can be so much more than just praying in church and just praying when we're afraid and just praying for our request, although all of those are good and have a place. It can be communion with God. Now, what does I want to wrap it up by saying, what does that look like for us? Give you a couple of pictures here of what communion with God looks like for us today. And I just want to make a few basic statements. And the first statement is this, how you start the day matters. I know some people are morning people and some people are evening people. I heard somebody say it the other very recently that it's hard for them to really spend a lot of quality time with the Lord in the morning. For them, it works better later in the day. And there are people like that. But in general, how you start your day matters. When, when the alarm goes off, what's the first thing you do? Is it check the phone? <laughs> check all the messages? Start planning all or getting ready for the day. Even if it's a brief time, if you're going to have a more extended time of fellowship with the Lord later in the day, it's 
it's helpful to just start the day with some fellowship with God the Father. Second, silence and stillness. We don't have a lot of this in our lives. And this is one of our big challenges to communion with God because we live in a very fast-paced world and we have all the technology and all the gadgets and all the noise that happens all the time. And communion with God happens best when we're just still. Just still. And even sometimes, like, basically it's the Bible and prayer, right? But you go into your time with God, and sometimes you're just very task-focused. Like, okay, i gotta got to say my prayers and do my Bible. <laughs> yes, do those things. In fact, I'm, that's the next thing is the word and prayer. Just have time in the word and time with God, but, but in, an, in an atmosphere of silence and stillness and just being still before the Lord. Lord, speak to me today. Here's an acronym. You've seen it. Many of you have seen it many times. I think it's helpful in prayer, and I think it's helpful to get prayer beyond just asking because it is really easy to just ask for a bunch of things, and that's acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Adoration is worshiping God for who he is, and nothing helps me more than just reading the Psalms and seeing things about God and, and when I see something about God, just a pause and praise and worship. In fact, my time with God in the morning is more adoration and prayer and a little bit of meditation than it is study. I do more study later in the day. But I want to just praise God for who he is. Because I know my tendency is just to rattle off my request. Adoration. Confession, Lord, is there anything in me today that needs... And thanksgiving, thanking God for specific things. That's the difference between adoration and thanksgiving. Adoration is adoring God for who he is, and thanksgiving is thanking him for what he has done. And then supplication is when you pray for yourself and others. And then one more note, and that is just as you go. Communion is just praying with God as you go. You're getting dressed. You're driving in the car. You're walking from one meeting to another, from one class to another. You're on the way to school. It's, it's just, it's, you're washing dishes. <laughs> it, it, it's as you go. It's just talking to God. Just any time and all the time. It doesn't have to be a big special time of prayer. Prayer is and grows out of communion with God. David in the Old Testament had a great heart for that. He said, one thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One of the things that has helped me the most in this regard, years ago I started using something called the 2959 plan, and I saw this concept in there, and it said, often, here we are praying, and we glance up at God, and we gaze on our request. <laughs> we hone in on that request. And 
The notion is, let's change it around. Let's make our gaze be on God and the glance on the request, and that can be very helpful. Stuart Sachs of Villanova, Pennsylvania, told a story that while he was serving in Paraguay, a Maka Indian named Raphael came and sat on his porch. He was eating, Stuart was eating, so he went out to ask him, what, what, what do you want? And he replied, Ham Hanek Met. <laughs> Ham Hanek Met. Now, Stuart asked him what he could do for him again, and he said, Ham Hanek Met. He understood what he was saying, but he didn't understand the significance of it. Translated, that means, I don't want anything. I've just come near. And so he talked later to a, a veteran missionary, and he said, that's Raphael's way of honoring you. He doesn't want anything from you. You don't need to come out. He just wants to be near you. He just wants to be with you. What brings you here, my child, the Lord says? Ham Hanek Met. Maybe that's the heart of true worship. Maybe that's the heart of prayer. Prayer is and grows out of communion with God. Bow your heads with me, please. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.